G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 12. Peru greeted us with a weapons-grade stench. Well, to be fair, Ecuador had to take some of the blame too. The almost dry riverbed that marked the border between the two countries was strewn with oily brown puddles, plastic bags, rotting food and toilet waste. The windless mid-afternoon heat baked this foul mix into an eye-watering haze, though the roaming pigs found some joy in it. Lundy and I had kicked off our Peruvian safari with a five-hour bus ride south from Guayaquil, Ecuador, to the unloved border crossing. From here we took the night bus bound for Lima, the capital city, a thousand kilometres south. Our destination, the little town of Pacasmayo, was a little less than halfway along that route. What we couldn't see from the bus was that the countryside beyond the highway was turning into one of the world's driest deserts. There are some parts of coastal Peru where rain has never been recorded. So when we clambered off the bus sometime after midnight at the highway turn-off to Pacasmayo, we felt like we'd landed on a science fiction movie set. Lit up by the orange lights of the cement factory, featureless desert stretched in every direction. A single taxi driver was waiting with fingers crossed near the bus stop for a chance to take the odd night bus passenger the kilometre into town. That late at night, as the driver explained, we had only one choice for accommodation. It was grim. Just a concrete box in a dodgy part of town where every second pale yellow streetlight was broken. The building across the road seemed to be some sort of jail. If this was the best packers Mayo could offer we'd be back on the road south within a couple of days. So, I hear you asking, why on earth had we chosen Pacas Mayo? The reason, of course, was to look for surf. My one-typed-page surf report on northern Peru claimed that the wave a few k's south of town was one of the longest and most consistent in South America. So the next morning, having survived the night, we were up just after sunrise to find if this was true. Leaving our bags and boards behind, we set out through Pacasmayo's dusty, empty streets, trusting that walking in the opposite direction to the sun would bring us to the coast, and somewhere along the way, to the centre of town. Our lonely planet, South America, had no info on Pacasmayo, not even a town map, so we were flying solo. After five minutes, we found what appeared to be one of the main streets, and here were some simple shops, and the marketplace and as we walked further west, the town started to look like the sort of place we'd be happy to stay for at least a couple more days. Another few minutes' walk brought us to the top of a very low rise in the narrow main street, and there, just another few hundred metres away, between the two rows of simple shops and houses, was the ocean. At first sight, it was disappointing. 
a wind-ruffled grey sea stretched to the hazy horizon. On reaching the end of the street, we found weak, short-period waves pushing sideways along a grey beach. To the right, a couple of hundred metres to the north, a decrepit pier stretched 400 metres out to sea. Just beyond it, a fleet of perhaps 50 small, mostly wooden fishing boats tugged at their moorings. But turning to the south, we could just make out, perhaps three kilometres away, El Faro, the black and white lighthouse that marked the location of the wave we'd read about. It seemed unlikely there'd be good waves there today, but before we could think about trekking out for a close look, we'd need to find new accommodation and collect our bags from the truck stop flea pit at the far edge of town. Walking back through town on the same main street, near the spot where the ocean had first come into view, a quirky, historic two-storey wooden house caught our eye. Its ornate carved window decorations, and possibly a family crest at the peak of the street-facing roof, put the surrounding simple concrete block structures to shame. While I fussed around working out which angle of the house made the best photograph, Lundy noticed a tiny cardboard sign pinned high near its wooden entrance gate. Say alquilar, it said, which means for rent in Spanish. Having seen no other offers of rooms for rent that morning, we knocked on the door, wondering if the sign meant what it said. At first it seemed no one was home. It was only half an hour after sunrise after all. But then we heard a distant espera, which means wait. Then came a stumping of feet downstairs, a turning of locks, and there was Coco, just out of bed, mid-thirties, untidy dark mop of hair, greeting us like old friends and insisting we come upstairs to look around. We loved it at first sight, but didn't dare to hope we could afford the rent. Coco ummed and ahed about how much he should charge us, and eventually he settled on a nightly rate of three soles, about a dollar fifty each. For this, Lundy and I got a bedroom each and the use of the kitchen, dining, living area and the toilet bathroom. Coco apologised for the lack of internal running water. There was just a single tap outside the front door from which we had to collect big bucketfuls a few times a day. Too easy. Home sweet home. There was also a good room that Coco showed us but asked us not to use. Antique furniture and carpets, photos and paintings, silver cutlery and trinkets locked in cabinets had all been frozen in time since the days in the early 1900s when Pacos Mayo's pier, one of the longest on the Peruvian coast, had made the town one of the richest in the land. It would have made a perfect film set, and perhaps the story of how Coco's family had come to build such a fine house in Pacos Mayo might have made an interesting plot. Hardly believing our luck, we jogged back to the flea pit at the edge of town to collect our bags and boards. After lugging them back to our new dream digs, which we quickly christened Casa de Coco, and finding a shop to buy some bottled water and food, it was at last time to check the surf. This time we walked down our street as new proud residents of Pacas Mayo. Once at the sea, the path to El Faro began with a walk down a tidally paved promenade that fronted the town's best streets. But where the town met the desert, the promenade petered out, and we scrambled down a low slope to the grey-orange beach. 
Following the gentle arc of the coast, we scuffed through the desert out to the lighthouse. Let's just cut to the chase and say that the surf report gave us great advice once again. Okay, Packers Mayo isn't the place to go if you want to get the deepest barrel of your life. But if you want to go fast until your legs hurt, then go a bit further, this is a great place to do it. Two to three hundred metre rides were not uncommon, and on the bigger days they'd be longer. And the waves were so consistent. In our three weeks there, we saw three excellent long-range double overhead swells that waxed and waned over a period of about six days each. It was like surfing on the moon. Apart from the black and white checks painted on El Faro, there was nothing but the light orange-grey of the desert as far as you could see. It seemed it hadn't rained for a thousand years. Smooth, flat river stones lined the beach, and low walls had been built from these, perhaps by fishermen. These walls gave us shelter between surfs from the constant south wind, and once the everyday sun had fought its way through the morning haze, the flat stones made a luxurious warm grill to spread your towel and shivering post-surf body on. This was essential, as the ocean was cold, only 14 or 15 degrees, thanks to the Antarctic Ocean-borne Humboldt Current. I was glad, again, that I'd brought my crusty old Sydney winter wetsuit along for the ride. It allowed me to survive for an hour or two longer than I could have without it. The water was grey in the morning, grey-olive green once the sun rose high, and always opaque due to the fine sand sweeping ever north. On the three-kilometre walk out to the waves, we'd pass the occasional dead seal, probably caught and or killed by the fishermen who worked the town's main industry. The presence of large seal colonies all along Peru's coast meant there must have been sharks, though in those days it never crossed our mind. It was a 45-minute walk along the desert coast from the town to El Faro, so we'd pack enough food and water to surf the whole day. One time, we came in from a morning surf to find our food had been stolen. Just the food, mind you. Not our water, our towels, our clothes, or even the little bit of money in our pockets. 
In the evenings, if the sky was clear, we'd see the desert turn ever richer red-orange as the sun fell to the horizon. On the late walk back to town, the sky faded to purple-black and a million stars distracted our gaze. How great is living in a desert? At first, there was just Lundy and me. Lundy was a gentle, thoughtful Queenslander who rode a surfboard well. We'd met by chance in El Salvador a few months before, then again in Costa Rica, then in Bogota, Colombia, where his wife's family was from, then in Montanita, Ecuador, where this chapter began. His wife, Melissa, had a fortnight's work in Bogota, so she'd given Lundy a leave pass for this Peruvian safari. On the first weekend, Lundy and I met the small handful of local surfers. They adopted us, introduced us to their sisters, girlfriends, mums and dads. They invited us to their barbecues and their discos, and they gave us car rides out to the waves. One of them was hilarious. The first time we met him, he was surfing the point naked. Quite an achievement in the frigid ocean. Miguel's girlfriend, Rosita, gave me lessons in Spanish and introduced me to her mum and four younger sisters, all with golden brown eyes, like lions. We spent hours practising our English and Spanish on their sunny terrace across the road from our place. And one of their dads had a room full of what might have been a priceless collection of pre-Columbian pottery and ceramic art that he'd gathered from secret personal discoveries in the nearby desert. Late one Saturday night, after the disco had closed, one of the non-surfing friends of the local boys asked me to accompany him on some unspecified mission. Before long, we were walking into the poor, dodgy section of the town that Lundy and I had escaped after our first night. The further we went, the more excited he became. At one point he stopped to ask me how much pasta I wanted him to buy for me. Pasta? The food? I replied. No, no, pasta, from the coca, he said, surprised I didn't know. Apparently, pasta's the name for the paste that later gets refined to make cocaine powder. Oh no, none for me, I said, to his disappointment. I suddenly knew where we were going, but I was stuck. A minute later we arrived at this scary-looking house, and he led me through a metal gate into a rough courtyard. Come inside, it's safer, he said. So I did, but it felt anything but safe. When my mate disappeared into a back room, I waited for a minute, then resolved to run away. I left the house as calmly as possible and walked 50 metres pretending I knew exactly where I was going, which I didn't. As soon as no one was looking, or so I hoped, I sprinted to where I guessed the town's main street might be. Half an hour later, I was safely back at Coco's house. But Coco was out somewhere, and I didn't have a key. So I was stuck outside with the occasional group of weekend louts from out of town roaming the streets. To avoid attracting their attention, I curled up tight against the inside of the entrance gate and waited an hour or two, snatching minutes of sleep, until Coco got home. That dodgy night in the back streets of Pacasmayo was the closest I got to cocaine in the whole year of travelling through the Caribbean and Latin America. From Pacasmayo, Lundy and I made day trips by taxi to the waves in the nearby villages of Puamape and Chicama. 
In the 1970s, the wave at Chikama had gained the debatable reputation as the longest in the world. However, it only broke well a few times a year, and it was barely waist-high the day we visited. But the highlight there was re-meeting Jimmy and Julie from San Clemente, California. I'd first met them a few months before round a campfire on the beach in Pabones, Costa Rica. Since then we'd followed similar but different routes south, so I spent most of the day swapping stories with them instead of surfing the small, slow waves on offer. I gave them our address in Pacasmayo, and sure enough, the next day they turned up and moved into the third spare room. Jimmy was like the older brother I never had. We had so many experiences and thoughts about life in common. He was restless, cursed with curiosity, unconvinced there was anything better to spend a life on than exploring, pursuing experience, whether it was in the ocean or the mountains, with company or alone. We spent days discussing our hopes and future plans, expecting that while these nomad days couldn't be infinite, could they? What was it that would make us want to change this way of life? How would we know when enough was enough? Seven years later, I met him, by chance, on the stairs at Uluwatu in Bali and found neither of us had got any closer to answering those questions. Somewhere at the market during these weeks, I found an English-language copy of Future Shock, Alvin Toffler's 1970 guess at what the late 20th century and beyond might look like. It made great reading in 1993, and I reckon its analysis of the impact of rapid technological change on individuals and society would still make great reading today. I made about five pages of notes on it in my diary, and here are a couple of quotes I scribbled down. The people of the future can enjoy greater opportunities for self-realisation than any other group in history. The future offers more varied life niches, more freedom to move in and out of these niches, and more opportunity to create one's own niche. It also offers the supreme exhilaration of riding change, changing and growing with it. It presents the individual with a context that requires self-mastery, more exciting than riding the surf or the pursuit of pharmaceutical kicks. In another chapter, Toffler notes, there is a snowballing belief that reason has failed man. Not a bad bunch of guesses from 50 years ago. A couple of days after we became his house guests, Coco went back to work in Lima, 700 kilometres away, leaving us to look after Casa de Coco ourselves. When he returned a week later, he brought his lovely girlfriend and a radio cassette player with a hundred cassettes, all in the wrong boxes. I'm sure Coco was hoping we'd stay for a year, so when I told him I was thinking of leaving in about a week, he came over all sad and persuaded me to stay a bit longer, rent-free. In another life, I could have happily stayed in Pacasmayo forever. As the local AM radio station call sign of that time proclaimed, Todo es siempre buenasa en Pacasmayo which means everything is always beyond the very best in Packers Mayo. But on August 14th, I made a reverse charges phone call from Christian's place to my parents in Sydney. We discussed plans for what would be our first family Christmas together in six years. That left me four months more travel time, with Machu Picchu and so many other places demanding a visit on the road home, if I could stretch my funds that far. 
A week later, I gave Jim and Julie the key to Casa de Coco and caught the bus further south down the Pacific coast. It was hard to leave one dream home in search of another, but the world was too big a place. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. There's also an Instagram page if you search up jameswoho. underscore W-O-H-O. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Mori at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya.